Thanks for tuning into the Life in the Front Office podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks to Suja Organic for their support. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And enjoy today's episode. Welcome to today's episode on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Studio Organic. Excited to be with my guest and Michael Rueda, uh, U.S. Head of Sports and Entertainment for Withers Worldwide. We'll get into Michael's journey, career path, what his uh, work and, and, and what kind of what verticals he, he lives in on a day-to-day basis. But uh, Michael, nonetheless, we'll, we'll have to start off with uh, your journey as a Husky. Um, you know, everything kind of always goes back to sports one way or another. It, you know, it, the typical answer is like, oh, yeah, I was an athlete. And so I wanted to get into the business of sports. Um, we'll see if that had something to do with with your journey. But nonetheless, welcome. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. OK, so I did leave off with the Huskies uh, men's soccer. You happen to win a championship, I think. Something yeah, like we did. Uh, 2000. So ta- walk, walk us through kind of your journey after that. Um, was there any pro aspirations or was it, hey, I want to use kind of my my experience in sports, playing sports and getting into uh, that world from a business perspective? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, my time at UConn was incredibly special. Um you know, to a, in a sense, I didn't know what I was walking into. UConn was the only school that approached me that told me if I came to UConn, we, you know, the team would win a national championship. At that time, I, you know, the schools that were recruiting me weren't saying those sorts of things. It was a new coach, new, pro, you know, the program was taking a different direction. Uh, and it was completely eye-opening from a discipline perspective, from learning the game, uh, learning my, about myself as a player, uh, being surrounded by some of the best players in college soccer, um, you know, learning to play a role. The guy that started in my position was a, on, a, on his senior national team. He played for Trinidad and Tobago. And when he graduated, he skipped MLS and went to Europe. And, and within a couple of years was playing in the Premier League for West Ham. So we had an incredibly talented team um, and we were lucky enough to win a national championship. But all the stuff that I learned along the way, along during those four years, right? Competition, commitment, discipline, and passion, passion for my teammates, the school, our, our common goal, um, like left a very lasting impression on me. And it, you know, I, I was always a, a decent player, but I, you know, I lacked a lot of those things and being surrounded by that sort of atmosphere really changed who I was as a person. Um, and coming out of college, right, I, I did try to play in what was called then the A-League, uh, which is now, I, I, yeah, was a predecessor to the USL. Uh, it was really tough. Uh, MLS was a few years old. Uh, A-League had been around. But, you know, if you played for the A-League team that I was supposed to go play for, you know, it, your experience varied. I had teammates there and had, I had decided to study abroad my last semester of college anyway. So it became a bit of a challenge. And I always knew um, that I had I had uh, a foot in, in other ambitions, right? I, I wanted to be, you know, I, I wanted to have a successful career. I didn't really know in where or what, but I did 
I did start to think at the end of my college career that I wanted to remain in sports. Uh, it's it specifically soccer. And I, I thought about the best path to do that. And for me, that became uh, going to law school. Uh, so for me, for some reason or another, and I, you know, when I talk to students or law students or students that are aspiring, aspiring to go to law school, you know, there wasn't, I, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. For some reason, something told me, hey, I think you should go to law school. That will open some doors. And I really wanted to work at ML for MLS at the time. I talked to them about an internship, but the internship they offered me was during my uh, law school semester in Boston. So it didn't really work. So that I knew there was an ambition to be in sports. I didn't know exactly how to get there, but I thought, listen, if I go to law school, I think I would, I'd learn, uh, you know, I, I'd have a, a skill set and a degree that'll help open doors for me. Uh, that, that was sort of the direction I took for better or worse. It was just a decision I made and uh, it, it happened to work out long-term. Well, you made, you made the decision, the right decision, right? And I wanna go back to something you said just earlier about, you said passion about the teammates, the common goal, um, and one other thing, but not, nowhere did you mention the sport itself, right? And I found that interesting because that then can transfer to whatever your work is, right? You're passionate about a common goal, the people you work with, um, and maybe it was the environment I think you mentioned, but it wasn't necessarily the sport itself. You know, I, I don't know if that was inadvertent, um, but you. I heard someone else say this once, right? It's you know, pe people are always told to fo to to follow their passions, but it's it's you know, following, learning to be really good at something and do something well and being appreciated for the one thing that you, not the one thing or a thing that you do well, right? It can become your passion. And to me, there was there was some aspect to that as I was learning to become the a player and the type of player that I became at the University of Connecticut. Right, I I, I knew I was a midfielder forward, but at UConn I became a defensive midfielder, um, and I learned to love that role uh, on the team and and knew what my role was when I came on the field and what my objective was and why I was being inserted into the lineup for however many minutes I would play. Right, so you. I, and the part about the teammates, when you're on a team like that with so many good players, you know, you can't make everyone happy, right? There's so many players that could have played that could have said, you know, I should have started or, you know, I, maybe I could do a better job than, than the next guy. But we were so committed to winning and to each other. Um, and at the end of the day, we won. So, we, you know, we couldn't look back and say, you know, we made mistakes. We won. Right. It was hard it's hard at the end of the day to sort of criticize what happened, but th there were many moments within those locker room within, within that locker room where we, one player would talk about, you know, potentially transferring, but I think it was that commitment to the, to the goal, to each other, to not sort of ditching our teammates and and following through with the goal of winning a national championship. It, it's what kept us there. And I see those guys till this day and it's, it's, there's still that bond. I mean, I I was just with 28, uh, maybe 25 of the 28 guys that were on that roster at a reunion, and it's like we're still brothers. I mean, we we competed, we fought, we you know we made fun of each other, but we all were committed to win, and and that's what it takes sometimes in any in any organization, right? Is to have a common goal, bring people from different backgrounds that can work together towards that goal, 
and have and have a clear objective and figure out how to get there as a, as a unit. And that's what we were able to do. And it's something that I still think about uh, continuously in the work that I do and the team that I have today. Yeah, I mean, I think in sports in general, right, it's, it's a family away from family. Most time you spend more time with that family at work than you do with the family at home. And so when you think about how that that transitions or that transfers, um, you know, certainly applicable. And, and when you think about uh, your journey from then law school into the world of sports, when you're sitting in law school and you go, how do I get into sports law, right? It's not as easy as like, yeah, there's options to maybe go be an associate or, uh, you know, an attorney within a team, right? Or within a league, but outside of that, then it's like, okay, well, what are the options, right? So what's the landscape look like? How do you get into sports law if you're not at a team and, you know, being the, the team attorney or, or, you know, general counsel? Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't an easy road and it wasn't a quick road. Uh, I left law school and joined a New York City firm uh, that, you know, paid well and 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 taught me to develop my skill set. Um, we had a diverse group of corporate clients. I worked on everything from IPOs to mergers, uh, late hours, really late hours. Um, and I, I was I was somewhat happy. Right. But as as I looked towards my own future, and, and right when you work at a law firm, ultimately you want to become a partner, you, you have to develop your own, your own uh, client base, right? Like when you think about, okay, how am I going to differentiate myself between the other thousands of corporate lawyers that there are in the US? Like, how do I, how do I differentiate myself? Um, and luckily, when I was sort of going through that thought process, I had the opportunity to come to the firm that I'm at now that had an established what they called sport law practice in, in the UK and, and Europe. Uh, it operated primarily in soccer, which was obviously very interesting to me, um, and, and other sports like motorsports, tennis, and, and they represented teams, um, federations, players, and agents. So it was, it was appealing. And I came over to the, to the firm as a corporate lawyer and, and, and introduced myself to that group and said, hey, you know, this is my background you know, I, I'd love to be, be helpful to you uh, if, if I can be in the U.S. Um, and credit to the, to the person who ran the group and who runs the group in Europe. He was very open to my, to my suggestions. And I think it was probably within a month that I was, you know, writing and researching topics that I thought would be inter in, um, interesting to sort of the European demographic of the sports community, uh, you know, and how some of the U.S., how the landscape uh, at that time we were talking primarily about soccer, uh, you know how it differentiated, um, and and that was sort of my entryway. Um, and I started doing work for some of our existing clients, and and sort of expanding the work we did. And then over time, you sort of realize that the U.S. market, when we're talking about uh, athletes in particular, our athletes are are doing so many different things beyond just being athletes that they sort of mimic many of what my corporate clients or entrepreneur clients are doing, right? So bringing to them the same level of sophisticated advice, attention to detail, sort of the broad scope of looking at their overall careers, not just their athletic career and how we sort of position them best for success. That was something that I thought we needed to build on in the US. And that's sort of how our practice in the US transformed over the past five years or so. 
I was watching a, an interesting documentary or series, I guess you could call it, on Michael Strahan, and it was called More Than an Athlete. It was on ESPN Plus, right? And it was talking about all the different things that he's done and is doing outside of, of even sports, right? With, you know, utilizing obviously his career on the field, but, you know, then going to, you know, Kelly and, and Good Morning America, right? Like all these different things. Now he's learning the entertainment side and the media side of things where um, when you think about the athlete today and where the athlete needs to and can maximize their career, whether that be two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, right? Whatever it might be, how do you go about approaching that from a legal side of, hey, you need to think about this? Yeah, I mean, look, there's never a shortage of interest, right, on, the, on, on behalf of our clients. I think, and this is where I think, you know, I'm really lucky or I think, you know, the industry has changed. I think very early on, the athletes that we work with are thinking about, hey, I want to do this next or I'm really interested in this. So I don't think there's a limit, uh, you know, in sort of that thinking. I, I think what's happened is, you know, for us, the, 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 the clients that we have that we get to work with are come to us and rely and understand, right, that, that all these different things sort of impact each other, right, whether it's from a revenue generating uh, perspective or a conflict perspective, um, you know, or a risk perspective, it's all, they're all interrelated, right, and they want, they want our expertise on sort of structuring that next path and also making sure that that next path isn't going to limit other things that they want to do is consistent with their long-term objectives, their, their positions on, on, on subject matters that they're very passionate about. If in particular, they're very outspoken, um, you know, or philanthropic, right? Like all this stuff is really intertwined these days. And for the clients that we work with is making sure that they, and again, we're lucky that they understand this, that they understand that everything, everything impacts everything else. Um, and sometimes you sort of have with, with newer clients, you sort of have to go through the process once for them um, and with their agent and sort of, and get them to a, a place where they understand, right? This is, you're, you're at another level now and you need to sort of think through these things and get some additional support around you to make sure you're doing it uh, properly. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, the interest in new activity or the interest in, you know, other ventures, it, there's no shortage of that. We see a lot of that. And, and that's the exciting part. Well, at the end of the day, the athlete is the CEO of their own business, right? Their business being their performance, you know, on the field court, whatever it might be, but still the CEO of their own business in whatever endeavors they're in. And why not try and take advantage of some of those endeavors while you have the name and you're playing and, and you know, you have that following. Um, when you think about the difference between players and coaches, what's the biggest difference knowing that, look, the, hopefully the coach can have a much more, uh, you know, longer career in the sense that, hey, it's not limited to just uh, age and the performance yeah. on the field. Not so much, right? right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are some differences, right? I mean, you know, with respect to the stuff that we do, a lot of those outside activities are a bit more subtle, right? I think there are, are different pressure points that they face. 
Um, there are different opportunities that they have, right? Uh, you know, not every, you know, not to generalize, but it just, I, I think across the board, that tends to be the case. So there are other considerations that we, that we, that we have, that we encounter when we're advising coaches or general managers or, or people in that, in that sort of situation. So um, there are some similarities, right? There are, you know, there's personal aspects of what they're doing that we, that you, we work with them on. There are outside activities, but, you know, they have, they have a job, they have bosses that, you know, are very, that have their own, um, you know, sponsors and things like that. It's similar to athletes, but I just think there are some different considerations. And, uh, you know, again, some of that outside activities is pretty subtle in comparison to the players uh, on the team that they might be coaching. Let's face it, the player contract, the coach contract is certainly going to be more complex than our employer agreement, right? So uh, when you when you think about kind of what's all involved in that process and, and the negotiation aspect of it, um, what are some just kind of high level nuances or complexities that people wouldn't know necessarily about that process in itself? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not, I'm not always the most involved in the entire process, right? Most of the athletes, coaches will have an agent that, that gets their hands the most dirty. Um, in the situations that we get involved in, there are particular nuances that we have to pay attention to. And for me, the surprises, and, and again, some of the surprises more general to the industry, the, you know, the level of like precision, the level of attention to detail sometimes isn't always there, right? So when you see some of these things that blow up later in the media about, you know, how this coach was fired and now they're, they're, you know, arguing over what the coach is entitled to. Some of that stuff, when I've seen it, you know, when I, in front of me, when I'm doing a deal, I've been asked to sort of, uh, you know, participate, you know, I'm not surprised because the, the way this stuff is put together isn't, you know, if we were, if I was doing a deal for a company that I, that I work for, and, and we were exchanging the same amount of money, right? The, the amount of lawyers and eyes on that agreement would be, would be 10 to 15 times as much time spent on that coach's contract. So it's that level of detail and the level of sophistication sometimes isn't always there. And it, it, it surprises me. And it doesn't surprise me when you see that stuff blow up later on and it's in the media. And I'm not trying to sell what I do here, but that's, that's just something that I've, I've been pretty surprised about in the industry, um, you know, uh, not to, uh, I'd say more often than I, I would have expected to have seen it. What's the complexity of the corporate world that kind of surprises you the most as it's continued to evolve? And if, you know, if you're talking about 15 people's eyes on it, like, does it delay the process in terms of things getting done? How, how does that all work? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does definitely delay the process. I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I work for some venture funds and when we, when they invest money into a, um, you know, a, a newer company, right? There's a lot of kicking the tires, a lot of, uh, a lot of diligence, a lot of time taken to really familiar, familiarize yourself with the company and its business, its, its liabilities, its assets, right? And, and making sure that you are really aware of what's going on 
behind the scenes and then negotiating those agreements. Uh, you know, it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty formalized process these days, but you got to go through it all the time because for the very reason I just uh, discussed, right? You, you want to minimize the opportunity for stuff to blow up later on and say, oh, we didn't, we weren't aware of that, or we didn't, we weren't precise enough when we, you know, when we drafted that language, right? Everything I do is about words and words have very specific meanings, right? So we have to be very precise in how we put things down on paper. Um, and if we don't do that, then we're not doing our job. And so part of it is, right, like getting to know the, the company is doing all the diligence we can do and then making sure the agreements really nail down what the business deal is and, and all the other sort of corresponding terms that we need to be uh, aware of. And it is, and, you know, in comparison, it's a much longer process. It's a much more expensive process for like either part, like the parties on each side, but it's all there to eliminate risk. Yeah, I think the eliminating risk piece is, is interesting, right? You don't think about that when you think about, you know, signing a player or a coach or a merger and acquisition necessarily. Like that's not the, the first thing that comes to mind, right? It's like, what are the dollars? What are the years? Um, you know, what's, what's the term, right? Do they have an opt-out or, you know, that sort of thing. And, and that's kind of the forward facing thing, but, but behind all of it, right. Is, is all this extra detail of the, the what ifs almost. So when you think about the what ifs and, and the education component, you have to educate your clients uh, from a legal aspect, right? That's what they're paying you for. But how do you educate yourself on the business side of things to make sure that you're thinking outside the box, thinking of everything that you possibly could as you are advising? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and it's, a, it's a, uh, an issue I face uh, all the time. I'm just looking at, uh, I, there's a new client I have um, and, and was trying to familiarize myself with their business yesterday. And they, and they operate in sort of like the e-gaming uh, or the esports industry and they layer stuff on on sort of the streaming um, activities of some of the gamers, right? And so trying to understand the agreements that they have with the users or uh, advertisers or agencies, right? You really have to figure out. And I'm 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 don't game at all. I think the last time I played a video game was probably 15 years ago. Um, so trying to familiarize myself with the business sort of their goals and objectives, how it all works, right? Like, what are you selling? Uh, who, is, who is it targeted towards? And then trying to capture it in something that makes sense, both from like a business perspective and a legal perspective. It's, it's part of the job, right? You have to really get to know um, what their business is and the legal documents that you're preparing for them. Do they, does it work? Does it work in practice, right? Because if I'm just, if I'm just, you know, offering up agreements that they're not, they can't be off the shelf or they're never going to work. Right. We, you know, we deal with clients in the event, uh, sports event business, right. We can't, we have to be very careful about understanding the different, the different work we do and how that actually relates to the business, whether it's going to work in practice, how money changes hands, what people intend to do with IP rights, for example, it's just, you got to know how the business works or, what we're doing isn't really providing its fullest value, right? We have to, we have to really understand what, what the business is, 
what the goals are, who the parties are, what each party is doing to really be useful at the end of the day. Yeah, one last question for you before we head to rapid fire. When you think about your space, being a lawyer, what are the, the top two to three skills that you just have to have and, and excel at in order to be good in your business? Uh, one, you have to communicate, right? You have to be responsive to people. You have to be able to uh, understand problems and deliver solutions in a way that makes sense to people, right? Lawyers sometimes can get very academic and spot issues and identify problems, but but that's not what they're paying you for. They're paying you to identify the issue, but come up with a practical solution and communicate that solution in a way that makes sense. And in the, in the industry that I work in, right, some of my clients are regular consumers of legal information and some are not. So you have to deliver the same message differently to different people, right? Be, based on their, on their background, their familiarity with legal issues, or the business issues. So if I wasn't able to communicate effectively across the different clients I have, I would I would not be I wouldn't be as successful as I think we've been. Um, you have to be like I said responsive. I, this is I used to have a client. Uh, it was a great client of mine, but he he was a former lawyer. And every time we we'd hang up the phone, he'd say, "There's no escape," and there isn't. Right? We go away on vacation. My clients want to talk to me. Right. There may be other people helping the, you know, helping them out on a particular issue, but they don't want to be handed off to someone and not hear from you again. Right. They want you to be involved. They want you to be um, aware of where the issue stands, the work that's being performed. Right. So being able to communicate, being responsive. Um, and the other thing is so the stuff I learned in college. Right. Developing uh, a community among the people that work with me. Uh, for my clients, whether it's young attorneys, our staff, our IT people, that feel makes them feel part of the process. Uh, that we're all sort of chasing the same objective, right? Is to be as successful as a practice as we as we can be, and and doing that by de delivering good work product to our clients in a way that that makes them feel, you know, valued and poured in. Uh, and that we really put our time and effort into sort of helping them, right? We're helping clients grow, you know, if they're companies, uh, helping them grow their business. This is sort of their passion uh, and they want somebody that's equally as passionate about what they're doing uh, as they are. And, and if, if I can get sort of my team to sort of feel vested in uh, our clients and what we're doing, I think I have a better a better group for it. And, and, you know, again, it all stems from my time at the University of Connecticut. And, uh, you know, I, I try to find ways to implement some of that stuff without as much uh, as many of the curse words that our coach used to interject. We do. We, there's a, there's none of that here, uh, but sort of that camaraderie and um, common goal element is, is something, uh, you know, I, I try to implement in, in ways that I can. Love the insights. Uh, let's get to a quick rapid fire. Uh, one of the best parts of the episode, although uh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> incredible, incredible insights and perspectives, though, throughout. I really, really appreciate it. Um, all right, best soccer field you've ever played on? Uh, University of Virginia. We played. Uh, turf. Like what? What? What was it? Uh, it was grass. Atmosphere. It was grass. No, it was just the grass. Um, the field that was the best field. 
right? The best field was University of Virginia. The grass is just different. They don't grow grass like that in the north, Northeast, right? The grass was different. It's a preseason game. They were still the UVA of the 90s. They were the best, and we were nobody, and we ended up winning that game, and I just remember that grass, and it was incredible. But our home stadium back in the day, when we had one of the only uh, – UConn did, and we just redid the stadium. It's incredible. Uh, they put $40 million into the stadium and it's something you should see. It's going to be the best place in college soccer, but our whole, our old stadium used to have stands all the way around the field. And when we'd have a home game against like a St. John's, you'd cram 10,000 people in there and it, and it was intense. Like 10,000 people doesn't sound like a lot, but when you cram them into stands, you know, circling the field, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool experience. Best atmosphere in soccer. Um, I haven't been there yet, uh, but I, I'd love to go to Liverpool. The EPL, that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's on the bucket list too. Uh, favorite player that you grew up watching? That I grew up uh, watching uh, was a guy named Fernando Redondo. He played for Real Madrid and Argentina. He was just, and, and maybe he was why I sort of fell in love with the position I played ultimately is he was just a symbol passer of the ball he was really classy and elegant on the ball he, he he made players look really good and I just I loved watching him if you can think about the movie the big green and you're the goalie who's who's the characters coming at you is it the Vikings like what it what is it the, the character you remember the big green I'm, I'm mixing those up no oh all right we'll skip that one um all right, last one for you. Uh, you know, obviously well-traveled. What's, what's the favorite vacation spot? Um, yeah, my, my family as a kid, we used, to, we used to go visit my mother's family in Barcelona and travel up and down the coast. And some of those old beach towns still, uh, you know, north of Barcelona still stick out to me. And I, you know, I have little kids and that's the place I just keep dreaming of going back to. There, I mean, the, the, there's small beaches, there are cliffs, there's seafood restaurants on the water. And I'm talking, and when I say restaurant, it's like a tent with some guy cooking, you know, fish and paella and a big deep dish, uh, you know, pot for every, everyone's having the same meal. I was like, I think it was 15, 16 the last time I went. I like, I dream about going back to that, those beaches and that place uh, all the time. I tell my wife about it. She's, she's tired of hearing about it. She just wants to go now. Well, sounds like, sounds like you got a trip in the future once the kids are old enough. So Michael, really appreciate your time, perspectives, insights on the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suge Organic. Excited to uh, see where the future goes and uh, we'll definitely have you on again in the near future. Thanks for listening to the Life in the Front Office podcast presented by Suja Organic. Remember, you can get 15% off any one-time pack on shop.sujajuice.com with the code LIFO, L-I-F-O. And remember, if you like this episode or you like the Life in the Front Office podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Really appreciate you tuning in and stay tuned for the next one.